We are in John chapter 14, and I want to uh, review again verse 15, although we've we've dealt with that and uh, just kind of as the background. The part of what I want to do as well this uh, class hour is summarize somewhat in this slide here that I think you can see. Um, I think generally speaking, Glenn, you can send this out to everyone or Fred will post it or whatever in a subsequent email. But this is, I think, the best I can do in summarizing the salient points that Jesus is making in the Upper Room Discourse. Uh, again, the Upper Room Discourse is what we usually call John 14, 15, and 16, where the Lord is uh, talking to the, uh, well, it begins with the 12, but then Judas leaves the 11. And what he's really doing is describing uh, the details of the new order, the new covenant community that he is forming. And these are extraordinary points. They are I, I've often thought as I've studied these chapters and, and meditated upon them, uh, this must have been absolutely overwhelming for these disciples to hear. Now, they would eventually get it because they're going to live it. They're going to see it unfold in the book of Acts and so on. But let me look at each one of these real quickly, and then we'll go back to the text, because we've already started to see some of the teaching of Jesus, especially item number one and item number two, which we've already hit. But remember again, this is all in the context at the beginning of chapter 14, when Jesus says, don't be troubled, don't be anxiety-ridden. I'm going to the Father, and I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when I'm done, I'm going to come back for you. And where I am, you will be with me uh, forever. So uh, just an absolutely phenomenal promise. But the emphasis is what Jesus has been saying over and over and over and over and over again to these guys I'm going back to the Father, that is the ascension. And that will change everything, because then I'm going to send the Holy Spirit. I want to again go through that material. But let's quickly look at this, because we already saw this in John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. Prayer is going to change. Now, the, the, the prayer itself, praying doesn't change, but it's the, the nature and the new, new covenant community context of prayer. Jesus now takes on a mediatorial role, or mediator means one who comes between, a mediatorial role in, in, in defending us, being our advocate, praying for us. And then he also says, ask anything in my name, that's a very important phrase there, but ask anything in my name and I will take it to the Father, I will do it. So this is, this is a remarkable promise by the Lord Jesus, that in the new covenant community post-ascension, I am going to be your mediator with the Father. I'm going to be your parakletos, your advocate with the Father. I mean, it's just all of that is wrapped into that first point. Secondly, and we started this last week, we'll, we'll get to it in just a second, since you love me, keep my commandments. The walk of loving obedience. And the reason for that, and that's what we're going to again get into in just a minute, is the Holy Spirit. And we've talked a lot about him. You know exactly what this means. But again, in this context, the Holy Spirit is the sign, the mark of the new covenant, the new order. He's the sign of the new covenant community. He will indwell all believers. And therefore, and we're going to talk a lot about him because Jesus has much to say in these chapters about the Holy Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is 
is the key element. He's exactly like Jesus, one like me. Now, he's a different person in the Trinitarian nature of God, but one like me. He supports, he comforts, he strengthens, he teaches, he guides, etc. And then again, Jesus reminds the disciples, and therefore of us, that one of the marks of the new order is the promised resurrection. We will all be resurrected. We will all receive a new glorified resurrected body. And then I love these verses, verses 20 and 21 of chapter 14. Again, we'll get to all these here in, in just a little bit. But I call this a circle of love. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Father and the Son love all who put their faith in Christ. So we enter into this circle of love. This, And again, the Holy Spirit will come into this in, in later parts of the Upper Room Discourse. But this, this remarkable image of this, this circle characterized by love that we enter into, we join. And that's going to have the New Testament writer, especially the Apostle Paul, is really going to elaborate on this as he talks about being in the family of God, because that circle of love is the family, Heavenly Father. Jesus is our big brother. I'm hoping that doesn't offend anybody to put it that way, but in effect, that's true. And therefore, we're mutually equal in the body of Christ, in the family of God, in this circle of love. There's no hierarchy. There's no rank. There's not those who are better than others. We all are loved of the Father, loved of the Son, and we love each other. That's why he said, a new commandment I give, that you love one another. And then finally, we're going to start seeing some of these as we get into the text. But there are a series of my statements. When Jesus talks of my peace, we'll see that before our hours over today, my love, my joy, my friends. I now call you my friend. Just an astonishing statement for our Lord to make. So again, uh, I, I'm sure that uh, Glenn and, and Fred will make this available if you wanted to write it down. I'm going to now get out of it, but you'll see it again. And it just gives you and me now an overview of the really critical elements of the uh, Upper Room Discourse of the Lord Jesus. When he's laying out these marks and elements of the new order, the new covenant community that the Lord Jesus is creating. Are there any questions on this? Is there anything that's not clear to you before I get out of it? All right, you will see this again, but I think I'm going to click out of it now and uh, we can get to the, the text itself. Um, I want to pick up, if, if I can, although we did cover this a little bit last time, I want to pick up with verse uh, 15. And we have covered this, but I want to start there because what follows all builds on this quite, quite wonderful uh, statement. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I, I talked a little bit about that last week. When you and I use the word if, in English, we, in our language, English language, it's a condition. And, and usually conditional things are tentative. You, you're not sure. If you come to me tomorrow, we can have a cup of coffee. It's all conditional whether you come. But in the Greek language, which is much more complex, much more um, reflective of lots of different situations, there are three types of conditions. We, we call them three conditional clauses. This is a first-class condition. Again, I know that doesn't mean anything to you in grammar, but the point I'm making is, in a first-class condition, you're assuming 
that the statement you're making is true. It's not, it's not, well, I'm not sure it's true. I kind of think it is, but I'm not really certain. No, in a first class condition, it's assumed to be factually and objectively true. So that's why I'm not sure I totally like to do this, but I think it does help. That's why many expositors will argue that we can translate a first class condition since. So since you love me, that's true. It's not conditional. I'm not sure. No, since you love me, keep my commandments. So you have this, the Lord Jesus statement, and this is, again, one of these characteristics of the new order, the new covenant community, is the walk of loving obedience. Love for Jesus is connected to obedience to Jesus. They're not disconnected. And that changes everything, guys. Then this is a crucial point. You have, you, you're outside Christianity. You're in Hinduism, you're in Buddhism, you're in Islam. Why do you obey Allah? Because you're terrified of him. You're afraid he's going to hurt you if you don't obey him. In the ancient world, the Greco-Roman gods, they, they bowed and placated the gods by offering all these sacrifices because they were afraid of them. That is not your relationship with the living God. You love him because of all that he's done for you. And that translates into a desire to obey him. And that's why I've spoken about this as a walk of loving obedience. And that is that makes all of the difference in the world in our relationship with the living God. And so Jesus is saying something that is quite central to the new covenant community. Your walk with me is a walk of loving obedience. And that changes the dynamics of the relationship. And although in ancient Israel, you, you have in the Psalms, like Psalm 119 comes to mind, this love for God and love for his law, which translates into a willingness to obey and all that. As you know, by the first century, much of this has distilled down and really, I would even say deteriorated into a, a legalistic performance-based relationship with God, which is not what Jesus is talking about here. So again, I just wanted to remind you of why this is such an important comment that the Lord Jesus is making. It, it, since you love me, first-class condition, you will keep my commandments. And it's, it's just an extraordinarily important characteristic of the new covenant community. And I will ask the Father, and he will send another helper. We talked about this last week, so I've got to be careful. I don't repeat everything. But the helper, it's, it's, it's advocate, counselor. The Greek word is parakletos. And it, it, the language of the, the modifier, another, is one just like me. It's, it's one just like me. In other words, in character traits, in attributes, in trust. And of course, this is a reference to the Holy Spirit. And if you want validation for that, let your eye go down to verse 26. The helper is the Holy Spirit. So if there's any lack of clarity, verse 26 nails it down. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. To be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth. What will this helper be like? Just like me. The Spirit of truth. No deception, no lies, no duplicitous promises. 
that you're not sure he's going to keep. And this is in contrast, contrast, even juxtaposition with Satan, who is father of lies, who by his nature deceives. No, not the Holy Spirit. He's just like me. And then again, these wonderful statements, um, whom the world cannot receive, remember what world means, but it not, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells in you and will be with you. Now, the Lord is going to elaborate on this in chapter 16, but he's stating the fact of the new order, the fact of the new covenant community. That fact is that he will indwell you. And this is going to, again, be picked up in the New Testament uh, letters of Paul, especially, although to some extent in Hebrews as well, but that our bodies, we individual Christians, are the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so this, this is just a wonderful summary of one of the key elements, or really not just one, several of the key elements of the new order, the new covenant community. And one more point I want you to observe in 16 and 17. You have all three persons of the Trinity in those verses. You have the Father, you have Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit. And so you have this, it is complicated, it is hard for us, as Westerners, to think this way, as we think logically and linearly, but God is Trinity, one essence of three persons who are co-equal, co-eternal, co-essential. Their difference is a relational difference, not an essential difference, and they're all involved in the creation and sustaining and blessing of the new covenant community, that Jesus is now describing the characteristics of this new order of things. All right, before we move into verse 18, any questions? This is wonderful stuff to review. It really is. Are you with me? All right. I'm assuming you're with me, let's move on. Verse 18. This is a promise. This is a promise of the Lord Jesus that he's speaking specifically to the disciples, but by extension to all who will be blessed in this way. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That a little while the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live, you also will live. All right, now verse 18 and verse 19 is stating the simple fact, I will leave you, not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. And this is, of course, a promise. He is going to be crucified. He's going to leave them, but he's going to come to you. This will be in the post-resurrection experiences. But it can also mean, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. John chapter 14, the first several verses. I'm going back to the Father. Don't be worried. I'm preparing a place for you. I will come back for you and so on. So it's a double entendre. It has a double application to it. But then this extraordinary statement at the end of verse 19, because I live, you also will live. That is a reference and really an embedded promise of the resurrection. This life is eternal life. Because I live, I will not stay in the grave. I will be resurrected. And because I will be resurrected. You will too. 
your destiny is an eternal destiny of fellowship with me. And it is the Apostle Paul in the entire chapter of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, the longest chapter in any of Paul's letters, you have this very detailed discourse on the resurrection. And Paul is clearly building on what Christ says here. Okay, now verse 20, in that day, what day? The day of my resurrection, in which I then promise you the resurrection to be with me, as he said in chapter four, beginning of chapter 14, uh, with forever eternal life. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. And whoever keeps, has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father. I will love him and manifest myself to him. There's, those two verses are where I get that little phrase, a circle of love. We join into, we enter into this circle of love. Why? Because Jesus is alive. The resurrection of Jesus is a phenomenally important promise that Christ makes here and an imp crucially important fact of our faith. Jesus is alive. And that years ago, the, the Gaithers put a worship course together because he lives I can face tomorrow. Because he lives, no, you know, all these wonderful statements in that, the lyrics of that worship, worship course. And so it's the same idea that Christ is trying to get across to these guys in the upper room. The resurrection is going to change everything. It's going to change everything. Eternal life for you, an intimate uh, life of fellowship and intimacy with the Father and with the Son and with one another. You will enter that circle of love that is part of your destiny as one of my children by faith in Jesus Christ. So again, what I'm trying to itemize out now and elaborate a little bit upon what was in that PowerPoint slide that we looked at a couple minutes ago. These characteristics, these marks of this new order, this new covenant community that Jesus is creating. It's, it's quite wonderful. And these all promises all apply to you and to me as, as we look into our future. We claim these promises that Jesus has made to us. Okay? Then, still silence, but that's because everybody's muted and you're just drinking all this in. So let's move on to verse 22. Judas and John wants to make sure we remember this is not Iscariot. Uh, the, the proper name is also Jude, but it's Judas, and, and um, Judas and Jude are basically synonymous from the ancient world language. So it's not Iscariot. This, this Judas is, is not the half-brother of Jesus who writes the epistle of Jude. This is apparently the Jude or Judas, the son of James, that's mentioned in Luke chapter 6 and I believe also in Acts uh, chapter 1. But anyway, Judas, not Iscariot, said, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? So he's, he's keying in on that question that was a question that reflects what Jesus had said in verse 18. 
Good question. Verse 23. Jesus answered, If anyone loves me, he'll keep my word, loving obedience. My Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Now, it's that last phrase that is most important, because everything else in verse 23, he's already said. But now he says, love him and come to him and make our home. That's plural, our home with him. How? By means of the Holy Spirit. And by the way, that term that, term that I read from the ESV translation, that term home is mone, dwelling place. It's the same word that's used at the beginning of John 14, what we often translate place. So it's the same word. And so you have, again, this absolutely fantastic promise that we will make our dwelling, our home, our place, the level of intimacy of the new covenant believer is Father, Son, and Spirit are intimately connected to every believer. It is the Holy Spirit who indwells this, make our home our, our natural dwelling place. It is the Holy Spirit who indwells, but it's, an, it's a personal intimacy with all members of the Trinity, because that circle of love, which he described in verse 20 and 21, is, is fleshed out in the indwelling ministry of the Holy Spirit, which makes it possible for all of us to have an intimate, personal relationship, like a home with the Trinitarian God. I mean, this is, this is the infinite, eternal God trying to communicate in human language a profound truth, that those who are believers in Jesus Christ enjoy a new circle of love. They have a new home, a new dwelling place. And that is not only the promise of heaven, a new home in heaven, but this is the new covenant community that's being created, which has a level of intimacy with the Trinitarian God that is almost incomprehensible for you and for me. And so here's the infinite and eternal God trying to communicate in words this level of intimacy with us that we can enjoy. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. I'm, he says this over and over again in the Gospel of John, but I'm communicating the eternal truth of the Heavenly Father. And so, I had a little trouble with 24. Um, I'm asking, uh, the Lord is going to speak to um, those who do not love Jesus, like uh, the Judas who uh, sold him out. Uh, what does that, what does that 24 mean? Does it mean the Lord's, is it threatening? Or is it, uh, I just don't understand how, when and how God will speak to those who do not love Jesus. Well, again, uh, Woody, I'm not sure what translation you have, but my... What is you? 
Okay, in, in my translation, the first part of verse 24, who do, whoever does not love me does not keep my commandments. And so that is just a, that's a statement. It's a declarative statement. Jesus is declaring this. If you love me, keep my commandments, verse 15. Verse 24, if you don't love me, you're not going to keep my commandments. And so Jesus, again, is he's, he's responding to Judas's question. How is it to manifest yourself to us and not to the world? I'm not going to manifest myself to those who don't love me, who don't care about me, who don't respond to me, who reject me, whose hearts are hardened against me. That, that's why I don't, that's why I don't um, manifest myself to the world, Judas, because they don't love me. They've rejected me. So, um, I mean, Woody, do you understand what what he's saying there? Woody? <laughs> yeah, the next part is uh, the part that got me. Oh, I see. Is God going to speak to them, or what is that, in judgment, or uh, judgment day, or what? <laughs> I just didn't well, get that part. Well, Okay, good. The word that you hear is not mine, but the Father who sent me. Everything I've just been saying, this is Jesus speaking, everything I've just been saying are not my words, but they're the Father's words. And I mean, he's, he's just summarizing. Where do I get the authority and right to say all that I've been saying since verse 15? I get it from the Father. And so as he's been talking about his relationship with the Father and the Father and his relationship through the Holy Spirit with us, he's just, again, restating what he, where does he get the authority to declare these things, to state these things? From the Father. And that takes you back to John chapter 5. Jesus never acts independent of the Father. They're mutually independent members of the Trinitarian essence of God. So it's a theological statement, Woody, again, demonstrating that the authority Jesus has to say what he says comes from the Heavenly Father. He's speaking the same things the Heavenly Father speaks. Does that clarify it? Thank you. Yes, I think I get it. Okay, great. Okay. Well, let's move on. And, And Jesus now just continues. These things I have spoken to you while I'm still with you what he's been saying in in chapter 14, verse 26, but now an adversative, but the helper takes you back to verse 16, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, so now we're absolutely certain that the helper, the paracletos, one just like Jesus is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name. What will he do now, chapter 16 is going to be an elaboration of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. But here, excuse me, here the Lord Jesus stresses two things. Number one, he will teach you all things. Number two, he will bring to remembrance all that I have said to you. So, I mean, this is a fantastic promise. That in the new covenant community, in the new order, one of the distinctive 
roles of the Holy Spirit is a teaching role. And I would ask you, we have covered this a couple of times, so I'm not going to go into it again, but I would encourage you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through 16, where the Apostle Paul builds on this and explains this. What does the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit look like? And he speaks about that. And he lays it out in a logical three-part argument. So again, the Holy Spirit teaches us, but not only does he teach, what else does he do? Brings to remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit helps us to remember everything Jesus has taught us in his word. Now, for the disciples who hear this, they personally heard Jesus teach, and when they're dispersed following Acts 1.18, in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts of the earth, this is all going to be factually true. They're going to remember what Jesus said. The Holy Spirit's going to bring it to remembrance. They're going to know how to respond. But for you and me, this promise equally applies because we have the Word of God inscripturated in the Bible, which, again, I assume is one of the reasons you attend a class like this, that the Holy Spirit is teaching you the truths about God through His Word, and He will bring, help bring to remembrance the things that you have studied. And so you see, again, things really change with the ascension of Jesus and the coming of the Holy Spirit. This is a huge change. Now, it's not now the Levitical priests who will teach you the Word of God. That was the role of Levitical priests in the Old Testament, the Old Covenant. Now you have the Holy Spirit who indwells you. You're the new temple of the living God. And as you, you, you study and you read the Word of God, the Holy Spirit becomes your teacher. And in addition, the Holy Spirit then brings to remembrance what you have been taught in the Scriptures. And so you see, again, he's just like Jesus, another parakletos, another helper, just like Jesus, where Jesus is among the twelve, teaching them over and over and over again the same truths, helping to bring to remembrance what he's taught them through the teaches parables, he teaches stories, he just keeps saying the same truths over and over and over again. Now you have another one, just like Jesus, he'll indwell you, he'll teach you, and it'll help you to bring to remembrance everything in my word. Now, I know it's impossible to get excited via Zoom, but this is an exciting, profound, transformational truth that applies to you and applies to me. Here is one of the ministries of the Holy Spirit to you and to me, which is quite astounding. Got it? Yes. <laughs> All right. I'm getting too excited. Verse 27. Here's the first of the my statements. My peace. Peace I live with you. With you. My peace give I give to you. Now, 
let's talk a little bit about this because again, this is one of the marks or characteristics of the new order, the new covenant community is the peace of God. Now let's think about that word for just a minute. The Greek word for peace is Irene. We get our proper name, Irene. My daughter-in-law's name is Irene. It means peace. But Irene is really comparable to the Hebrew, which is shalom. The Hebrew word for peace is shalom. And I am convinced that's what Jesus really means here. Shalom I leave with you, my shalom I give to you. What does that term shalom or what does that term peace mean? Things are settled. Things are right with God. Your relationship with God is now characterized by intimacy and fellowship. And all that Jesus has been describing since John, uh, since verse 15, as we've been studying. So everything is right with God. Everything is settled with God. Because of what I do in my death, burial, and resurrection, and ascension, and the coming of the Holy Spirit, things are right with God. It's settled. And in addition, there now comes a trust, a confidence, a faith that he, the living God, the triune God, is going to keep all his promises. I can trust him. And so this term shalom, or the, the Greek uh, peace, uh, Irene, the English peace, all of those are linked together, is a remarkable settledness that characterizes the New Covenant community members. We are people of peace. Now, that's not in a military context, the absence of war. That's not what it means. It is this personal settledness and, and, and confidence, and, and things are right with God. And therefore, the Apostle Paul elaborates on this in chapter four, uh, chapter 4 of his book of Philippians, a very long discourse on shalom, peace. But this affects everything we do. And think too in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, same word. And so Jesus is saying, this isn't the normal human peace. This is my peace. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. So it is a characteristic and quality of the Lord Jesus, Jesus that he now gives to us. And as he is the peace of God, now we are at peace with God. And it, it, it's, just, it's almost an incomprehensible concept to wrap our minds around. This is what Jesus is giving to us. His peace. Yes. So the, I'm going to make a statement. It's more of a question, though. So this. Sure. The peace that, that you're talking about here is something more than our spiritual relationship with him. It, it also embodies peace about life circumstances, about world events. And I mean, it, it's a much broader concept of peace than just having a settledness in our relationship with the Lord. That's correct, Jim. It, it, because of things are now right with God, a settledness, it affects everything else. 
in, in, in how we look at things in our world. Uh, and, you know, after last night and all that, uh, um, you can be unsettled and it's, oh my goodness, this was the most, it's the worst debate in the history of presidential debate and all the stuff that you've heard people say and degree, it was true. It was horrible. But the, the, the point is, okay, you and I, all right, understand that's, that's what's going on. We live in a fallen, broken world. This kind of stuff's going to happen, happen all through history and so on. But, you know, I'm a citizen of a new kingdom, the kingdom of God. My citizenship is in heaven. And the Bible speaks of us as now sojourners. We're just passing through. So we have a totally different perspective about everything. And we are at peace. And that's why the Apostle Paul in, 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 in Philippians, excuse me, chapter 4, speaks of it as the peace of God. It's a settledness and a stability because we are right with God. We can be right with everything else because my focus, my trust is in the Lord. I don't trust in and just fill in the blank, anything, my money, my house, politicians, or whatever it is. No, as important as all of those things are in life, it is my peace with God that allows me to have the peace of God. So I'll repeat, that's a pretty good sentence. I'm going to repeat that again. My peace with God because of Jesus, everything is right with God. I now can experience the peace of God. And that's what Paul talks about in Philippians 4. It produces, and this is another element that's in Ephesians, uh, Philippians chapter 4, the peace of God produces a contentment. And that's a term Paul uses in Philippians 4, a contentment about life. So, Jim, I, I spent three minutes answering your question or commenting on your statement, but you are absolutely right. It's not only describing my settled relationship with God. It is my, my character trait of contentment. Because I'm right with God. I trust him. He's going to keep his promises. Does that make sense? It was a really, I'm glad you brought that up. That was really an important, important. Yeah, you know, it makes sense. It's also very important for us to have that understanding. It is. It is. And I mean, you know, history has just been filled with chaotic decades. One thinks of the decade before World War II and then the, the five years of the war. I mean, all that were horrible. But Christians are able to rise above that and have that spirit of contentment in the midst of terrible chaos because we are right with God. And we therefore can have the peace of God. A, fanta a fantastic commentary on the transformed life. Jesus says, my peace I give to you. Pretty, pretty wonderful truth. So because of that, I'm continuing now in verse 27. Not as the world gives do I give to you. So obviously the contrast is between the world's idea of shalom and my shalom. That's quite a contrast. So he repeats what we saw in verse 1 of this chapter. Let not your hearts be troubled. And that spills over into the question Jim just asked. The, your peace with God, things are settled with God, 
leads to the peace of God. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. And the word afraid there is from phobos, and we got a word phobia from that. We are not people of fear. We are people of faith. We're not people who are absolutely uh, disoriented by the chaos of our world. No, I don't fear the world because my faith and confidence and trust is in God. The opposite of fear for the believer is faith. And so Jesus can say with significant power and authority, because of what I've just said, let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. The absence of anxiety, the absence of fear. Does that characterize you? I tell you, man, I don't know how you guys are. I'll be a bit transparent here. Those two statements, I struggle with that almost every day. Anxiety and fear. Because of the unsettled nature of our world and all the stuff you could list that would, would cause us to reach that conclusion, it is very easy to be anxiety-ridden. And it is very easy to be afraid. But you have... You have the statements of Jesus. If you believe what I've been saying, and you have my peace, my shalom, things are right with God, that will result in contentment. See Philippians 4. And therefore, don't be anxiety-ridden. Don't be afraid. Keep your focus on me. And that is the importance, men. And I don't want to make this into a legalistic structure here. But that is the importance of every day spending some time in God's Word and every day talking to Him a little bit in prayer because that keeps this focus. My focus is on Jesus. And I'm reading His Word. I'm reminded who He is, what He does, what His characteristics are, what His promises are. Oh, yes, yes, yes. I'm not afraid, Lord. I'm not anxiety-ridden by this. My focus and trust is you. This is a part of the process of sanctification. We learn this. It's an objective fact, but we learn it applicationally as we live life. And we learn that contentment, contentment is one of the residues of the peace of God that is available to us by faith in Christ. So let's finish this paragraph then as we then transition into chapter 15. The Lord says in verse 28, you've heard me say to you, I'm going away. I will come to you. If you love me, you would have rejoiced because I'm going to the Father. Now he's been saying that over and over and over again. So there's, there's no new truth here, but look at the last phrase of verse 28, for the Father is greater than I. Now, don't stumble over that. This is a statement of the Lord Jesus of the role differences between the Father and the Son. This is not a statement of the essence of God. It's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the three persons of the Trinity, so the focus of that statement, the Father is greater than I, is the 
relational difference, the functional difference between the Father and the Son. The Father sent the Son. So in that sense, in that function, the Father's greater than the Son. It's a different role responsibility. If you go back, uh, another wonderful passage to look at, and it's like Paul does this throughout his letters in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. There the apostle Paul, to praise him, to the members of the Trinity. First part, praise the Father. Second part, praise the Son. Third part, praise the Spirit. They each have a different role. They each have a different function. And so that that sending role of the Father is described by Paul in, in Ephesians chapter 1. So that's what Jesus is saying. Again, the authority that Jesus has to declare all these things, and he's going back to the Father, is to understand that role difference between the Father and Son. And now I have told you before it, it takes place, so that when it takes place, you may believe. What takes place? When I go to the cross... I'm buried, I'm resurrected, and I send back to the Father. I just want you to remember, I'm telling you all this stuff, I've told you it over and over and over again. So when it happens, you're going to remember everything I taught you, and you'll believe. That's not the initial belief of, of trusting the Lord. That is, you'll have greater level of faith, a greater level of trust, because I keep my promises. When I declare something, bank on it, it's going to happen. That's what he means by you believe. Verse 30, I will no longer talk much with you. I mean, this is the upper room discourse. This is hours before he's betrayed in Gethsemane and his trials and his crucifixion. This isn't days, weeks, or months. This is hours. So I will no longer talk much with you. That's right. For the ruler of this world is coming. Now, the ruler of this world is Satan. I've told you this before, but I'll repeat it again. Satan is challenging God's right to rule. In his rebellion against God, which is detailed for us in Isaiah 14, 12 and following, he said, I will be like the Most High. In effect, I'm going to topple God from his throne. And he is challenging God's right to rule on planet Earth. This planet is in rebellion against God. And that's what Genesis 3 is all about. We've talked about that many times. So Satan, Satan is the ruler of this world. His kingdom is the kingdom of darkness. Paul talks about him in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 as the God of this age. And so Jesus says, for the ruler of this world is coming. What does he mean? Judas, we read about this earlier. Judas in effect, Satan has taken up residence in Judas. It is, it, is, it is Satan who is energizing and empowering Judas in the betrayal. And we are only a little bit, few hours. But when Jesus spoke these things until they go to Gethsemane and Satan, or Judas betrays Jesus and hands him over to the temple police to be arrested. So Jesus, in the context of when he says this, verse 30 makes sense. I, I will not be with you much longer. I'll no longer talk much with you. I'm about to go to the cross and die, and then I'm going to send back to the Father, because the ruler of this world is coming, but he has no claim on me. Fantastic statement. You see, this is the key element that you and I must always keep in mind. Satan has no claim on Jesus. 
He has no claim on you and me. We belong to Jesus. He has no authority over us. He has no claim on us. But I do as the Father has commanded me, so the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. And again, all that's going to happen to Jesus is a testimony to the world. Whether they accept it or not, whether they, they believe it's true or not, it's a testimony of the love of the Father for this world, sending his Son to die a substitutionary death for lost, rebellious humanity. Then Jesus says, rise, let us go from here. It's time. And that, of course, means it's time for him to go to the cross. Now, the discourse continues into chapter 15 and chapter 16. Now, some have, we're not quite sure then, what does this mean? Well, it could mean because where Jesus is in the upper room to get to Gethsemane, that's a long walk. So maybe he's teaching this as they walk, or maybe, rise, let us go from here. We're going to leave here in just a couple of minutes, but I have a couple more things I want to say to you. So we're not sure, but it doesn't matter because obviously Jesus is very much in control. So before we leave 14 and move into chapter 15, because we, we got about you know, close to 10 minutes, any final questions on chapter 14? I'm really taking my time on the Upper Room Discourse, chapters 14, 15, 16. So, not, a, not a question, but I have a comment. Yes, please, Glenn. <clears throat> you brought up the the piece about fear and anxiety. Um, yeah, I think I think it's only human to, to to battle that and fight that. Absolutely. But just as you watch the the COVID situation, as you watched the nine eleven situation years ago, right? The believers had a different have a different peace about us that the non believer doesn't have. They're not understanding where they're out of a job where their next meal is coming. They don't get that right. They don't understand. They don't have that peace about them. And we see it. We see it every day on the street. That's right. That's a very that's a very good comment. And those two catastrophic events that you talked about, COVID and then 9-11, yes, yeah, that is as absolutely true. The contrast between a believer who has the peace of God and an unbeliever who does not is a marked distinct contrast. Yeah, that's right. Good comment. All right, let's begin chapter 15. I have a question, doctor. Oh, yeah, please. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Okay. Um, chapter 14 there, um, I guess it's 30. Uh, or uh, uh, the prince of the world is coming. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what he says. Satan would not come with that intent. He would That's not it. want that. Is that correct? So what we're what Jesus is saying there is that God is permitting this, or this is the way it's going to work out. If Satan is, is that the way you look at that? That's correct. That's correct. Satan Satan's intent and goal is not the same as God's intent and goal. <laughs> and so God is going to use what is a monstrous evil, Jesus being crucified on the cross, which was a horrific form of execution, Satan is going to think, well, I've won. I've finally done it. And the father is going to say, no, I love my son. I'm going to bring my son back to life, the resurrection, which will indicate the triumph of God 
in sending his son, the love the father has for the son, the love the father has for the world. He will triumph over Satan through the cross of Jesus Christ, which is a manifestation of his love. So you're right. As Satan looks at this, it's very different than how God the Father and God the Son looks at this. So it's it's a very, very powerful uh, statement of the contrast of that event and how these two forces, the force of Satan and the force of the Lord, look at these things. All right, uh, let me introduce and maybe get started in chapter 15. Again, it's going to take us a while to get through these. But what Jesus does here is he makes a statement. I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Again, I'm reading from the ESV translation. Your translation might be just a little bit different, but the, the thought is the same. This idea of I am the true vine, the Father is the vine dresser, this is a theme that runs throughout the Old Testament text. Um, they're sometimes called in the book of Isaiah the vineyard, the vineyard songs. Now that, that sounds a bit highbrow, but it's Isaiah chapter 5, Isaiah chapter 27, Psalm 80 are examples where God is the vine dresser, God is the owner of the vineyard, you, Israel, are my people, are the vines. So Jesus is saying something. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. The vine, and this is an obvious fact, but I'm going to state it nonetheless, a vine yields its fruit, by means of its branches. So Jesus is the vine. Verse 2, we are the branches. Who is the caretaker? The Heavenly Father. So what Jesus is doing, now follow me here, Jesus is expanding. What does this circle of love entail? Well, one way you can talk about it is, Jesus says, I am the vine. I'm the main vine. You are the branches. The Father's the caretaker. So what does the Father do to the branches? Every branch in me. That prepositional phrase is crucial to understanding what Christ is saying. Every branch in me. So these are believers. These are the children of God. These are people that are in the circle of love. Every branch, because a branch, I mean, this is obvious, but I'll state it. Every branch has life because of the vine, the main trunk. It doesn't have life on its own. A branch can't have any life. It draws on the strength of the main vine, the main trunk. Okay, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, the father, the vine dresser. Now, the next Greek word, and it's one word translated, he takes away. It's one Greek term. That can mean he lifts up. 
It's used that way in numerous places throughout the Old and New Testament. He lifts up, and every branch that does not bear fruit, he prunes. He makes clean. So God is God, the God the Father as the vine dresser, the branches that are linked to Jesus. He lifts up so that growth can occur. He prunes, he cleans, he cleanses away the junk. And so any, you know, I'm not anything comparable to a good a good horticulturalist or a good grower or anything, but in the summertime, I grow tomatoes. They're done now for the year, but I grow tomatoes. And I learned from my father many, many, many years ago, the most important thing to do is keep trimming away all of the branches on your tomato plants that aren't yielding any fruit. Get rid of them. That'll get all the energy and all the nutrients into the good things so you'll get lots and lots of tomatoes. That's the idea that Jesus is getting across. I'm the vine. I am the main trunk. You are the branches shooting off off the trunks. What's the Heavenly Father do? He lifts you up as you're dragging on the ground. He lifts you up so you can grow, and he cuts off the junk. He prunes away the junk. So that what? Look at the end of verse 2. So that you may bear more fruit. Now, anyone that's grown tomatoes, or I've never grown vines for grapes and wine and all that stuff, but they tell me that's exactly what they're doing all the time. They're getting the vines up off the ground. If not, they're going to deteriorate and rot. Get them off the ground. They're pruning away the stuff that's junk so that you can get good, wholesome fruit. So when you start to unpack this, this isn't really hard to understand at all. And in the ancient world, when the disciples were the first ones to hear this, and then in the decades and years later, as the others would read this, as it becomes, oh, yeah, I got this. This is a, I do this all the time. Oh, I got it. So my relationship to you in this circle of love is like a vine, the branches, and the caretaker. Heavenly Father is the caretaker. The Son is the key trunk, the key branch. And we are the, the, the key trunk of the, of, of the, the, the vine. We are his branches. What do you do with branches? You keep them off the ground, you lift them up, and you prune the junk. Why? So that they can bear more fruit. And so I, I guess I better stop there. But this introduces this, what Jesus has just described using the analogy of a vine and the, and the branches. This becomes the basis for a very important command, abide in me. And you're going to see this over and over again in chapter 15. Abide in me. Draw your strength, your nutrients, your spiritual power from me. Because my spirit indwells you. And so now we're beginning to learn that in the new order, we draw our strength and our power from the Lord Jesus through his Holy Spirit who indwells us. Without me, you can do nothing. With me, you can do everything I ask you to do. And so Jesus is now describing this critical relationship of dependency on our Lord and Savior through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that's what chapter 15 is going to be about. I'm so thankful I could at least introduce this. 
Are you with me? Now, really, what I should say, are you with Jesus? Do you understand what he's doing here? Okay. All right, wonderful. Jim, uh, Jim please, please. That, that basically is that God has this uh, unlimited bank account, and we have unlimited <laughs> checks, and all we have to do is write the check. You got it. You got it. So, I mean, it's really describing in an agricultural society, Brad's illustration is in a commercial financial society, that we need to draw on the power and spiritual energy and vitality of Lord Jesus. We cannot do this on our own. And so this is a very significant chapter for what characteristics of the new order are about as well. All right, I think I'd better let you go and I, I need, I get to another class at 115, so I'm gonna have to go. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're grateful for the opportunity to study the word of God together. We read earlier about the Holy Spirit that sign of the new order, sign of the new covenant community who indwells, he will teach us. He will bring to remembrance all that you have taught us through your word. That is a fantastic, life-changing promise. That is applicable to us today in 2020. That's what the Holy Spirit says. So we studied together this afternoon. It is the Holy Spirit who's using his word to teach us and he will bring to remembrance these truths when we need them. That's a wonderful, very affirming. And one of the results of that is the peace of Christ. My peace I give to you, Jesus said. And that result of that shalom, things are right with God. We can therefore have contentment. And Lord, just help us to be men who are contented and at peace with you. Men of, men of strong faith. Men of of, of dependence on the living God, who rejoice in the transformational way with the salvation message, and therefore who represent you well. Energize these men, empower these men. They're blessed guys. I care for them a great deal and trust them to you. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, guys, we'll see you next week. Thank you, gentlemen. Blessings. Take care now. Good day.